name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. The derivatives market is a world beater when it comes to using acronyms from IRS to IRB and CDA to CDS. But for European derivatives market participants, two in particular will probably stand out, EMIR and MIFIR. These two innocuous-sounding abbreviations hide a mountain of complexity and impact pretty much every aspect of derivatives trading, clearing, margining, and reporting. Having been in place for a number of years, both pieces of legislation have undergone a review that will result in changes to key requirements, including those relating to market transparency and reporting. In this episode, we'll explore what some of those changes will mean by getting the perspectives of one of the EU's top regulators, ESMA Executive Director Natasha Kasanave. Asking the questions will be ISDA's Chief Executive, Scott Amalia. Scott, it's an interesting topic and we've got a super interesting guest. So what will we be talking to Natasha about? Well, you mentioned Amir and Mifir, or to give them their full names, the European Market Infrastructure Regulation and the Market in Financial Instruments Regulation. So I'd like to talk a bit about some of the specific changes that have been proposed and will be made. In particular, I'm interested in changes to the regulatory reporting rules that will come into force in the EU next April. This is something we've talked about in the last episode, and we agreed that digitization would bring about greater efficiency in the reporting process. ESMA recently published its five-year data strategy, so I'm keen to ask Natasha about how ESMA is thinking about this topic as well. As we discussed last time, reg reporting rules are being updated across the globe, and as part of an effort to bring greater consistency in data standards, which we very much welcome, I'd like to get Natasha's thoughts on the importance of cross-border cooperation between regulators and hear how ESMA is approaching the issue. Sounds good. Over to you then, Scott. Natasha, welcome to The Swap. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, thanks, Scott, for having me. Let's get started with an overview question. ESMA recently published its work program for 2024, which has a particular focus on digital change and the green transition. What are ESMA's priorities for the coming year? Thanks, and again, really happy to be here with you today. So, yeah, we published our 2024 annual work program and it's a quite a busy agenda, as you have mentioned. And what we try to do is provide some clarity guidance of what we're trying to achieve in the year to come. It provides also some sort of transparency on our key priorities. But if you look at our 2024 annual work program, it's structured around our ESMA-wide five-year strategy for 2023-2028. And here we have three key strategic priorities and two what we call thematic drivers. And that's what I'd like to focus on based on your question. So those two drivers are enabling sustainable finance and facilitating technological innovation and the effective use of data. And actually, so this really, the focus on these two fundamental transformations is a key area that's underpinning our 2024 work program. So let me zoom into maybe a little bit what we're doing on the sustainable finance agenda. If you look at our priorities, one of them will be to combat greenwashing. And there you will see us come with more work in relation to working with national authorities, fostering more convergence to apply the existing framework, and also publishing our final report on greenwashing in parallel to what the other European supervisory authorities will be doing in the banking and insurance area. A second area will be to develop new rules uh, for new regulations. So, for example, in the EU green bond regulation, we will be asked to provide some, some policy guidance there. 
And finally, if you look back at what we had published already, we had a sustainable finance roadmap back from 2022 to 2024. And there we will continue to align on those three priorities, which were fostering capacity building with national authorities, providing more supervisory guidance from a practical perspective, and also continuing to monitor risks and developments trends in this area. And generally, what also should highlight is that there's a lot going on at the international space. And so here also, we will try to contribute to make sure we have a regulatory framework that is fit for purpose for this uh, new development. And particularly, we'll be looking at the commission and the review of the sustainable finance disclosure regulation that they want to revisit. If I look maybe more at the digital side and what we're doing there, there are three key areas where ESMA will be active in 2024. The first is in relation to the implementation of the MICA regulation, so on crypto assets, the other one on the implementation of the DLT pilot regime, and the third in relation to the Digital Operational Resilience Act. So maybe very briefly on each of those, Scott, if you allow me. On the markets for crypto assets, in 2024, in cooperation with the European Banking Authority, we'll have to finalize quite a significant number of technical standards and guidelines. So the rules around authorization, governance, operation of crypto asset service providers, market integrity requirements applicable to crypto asset markets, the content format of information to be published by crypto asset service providers. And also the third consultation should come out in Q1 2024, where there are quite some important pieces of work we have to deliver on, for example, qualification of crypto assets as financial instruments or work on reverse solicitation. So quite a lot coming up. We'll also be monitoring the implementation of the market abuse requirements in this area. If I look at the DLT pilot regime, I'll be very brief, but it's still very important from our perspective. So this regime, the distributed ledger technology pilot regime, kicked in actually in March this year already. And in 2024, we'll continue to look at how this is actually rolling out. So working with national authorities to see, you know, what projects are coming forward. Here, we're not in the crypto space anymore, but looking at tokenized securities. And here, what we're really interested in seeing is what kind of business models are coming forward in relation to market infrastructures, efficiency of the post-trade environment. So what will actually be proposed by market participants and whether that will be scaled or not. So we'll be monitoring that with national authorities to see how this regime is being used in practice. And finally, on the Digital Operational Resilience Act, it's a really a major project for the EU and it's also a major project for us at the European supervisory level. We're working very much jointly with our colleagues from the European Banking Authority and the European Insurance and Occupational Pension Authority, really doing it as a joint project. And here we will be delivering in 2024 on three aspects. The first is the significant policy mandate, so the risk management framework, incident reporting, threat and penetration, etc. Second, making sure that financial firms are actually ready for the implementation, and that is both entities directly under ESMA supervision, but more generally all financial entities in the EU, whether they are well prepared and how to support that. And finally, last but not least, making sure that we prepare for this new responsibility we're being entrusted with in relation to the oversight framework. So what will that mean? How will that play out? How will we identify critical ICT third-party providers? So this is also a very important area that we will be looking at. It's a, quite an agenda and credit to ESMA for putting that five-year plan out there for industry input, review, and just direction of travel. Now, one of the key objectives within the work program is to, quote, promote global standards and enhance cooperation and dialogue with international regulatory counterparts, end quote. Are there particular jurisdictions or issues where you're looking to improve the cooperation and dialogue? 
So this is really an area of high priority for us in general. Financial markets are global. A lot of market participants are global. And it's important for us to have a good understanding of what are the challenges in other jurisdictions, what are our colleagues working on, and also to bring the EU voice to the table so that we can share also our own experiences and challenges. So certainly as a general priority for us, engaging, participating, being open about what we are trying to do is for us a high priority. In particular, we would be an active contributor generally in uh, standard-setting bodies such as the Financial Stability Board or IOSCO, where a lot of the global standards are actually developed and then they will have a direct impact and they will then shape what's going to happen in the EU legislative framework. So very important for us to understand and to provide that EU perspective as well. In addition to that, we've been evolving in an environment that is with heightened volatility, huge uncertainties, and we've been going through multiple crises in recent years. And there too, it's important that we are able to engage in the international arena and understand and provide global responses to some of these challenges. So specifically on the risk monitoring, understanding trends, monitoring what's going on in this rapidly evolving environment, being able to engage with our counterparts is, is really essential. So the risk focus probably is the number one. But then beyond that, you have a number of issues. So long-standing issues that you are, of course, very familiar with, ISTA and your members, for example, in the area of clearing and CCPs, where there's a lot of international and excellent work being done in CPMIOSCO, for example, we will continue to engage actively in the area of asset management. Also, where there's always a lot of discussions for the past decade, but still we're not at the end of that one either. But also I wanted to mention, we just touched upon sustainability and digital, but that's clearly also squarely high priorities in the international forum as well. And just to zoom into two specific aspects, one is sustainability reporting that is really very high on everyone's agenda. And when we want to make sure that we end up with a, a workable international outcome, and here we really are very supportive of the critical work that has been going on in relation to uh, climate-related disclosures, and the endorsement of IOSCO of the ISSB standards that has set the tone for this to be used really as the global standard to launch and shape our own regulation. In the European level, the ESRS, so the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, are the result also of an enormous effort to make sure that we are equipped with proper standards that can then be quickly used by corporates and provide that comparable information to the market. And here we are very pleased to see that both ISSB and FRAC have confirmed the high level of interoperability between those standards. And so we'll continue to work also with them to make sure that any outstanding differences are explained and understood by the market. So this remains certainly an area where we will continue to engage internationally to make sure that we have a workable, interoperable set of standards for the market. The other areas for crypto assets, very briefly, it's because there are very different approaches in the world today to crypto assets. And here I think it's also positive that despite that, we have managed to reach an agreement on a first set of international recommendations that have been published by the FSB and there's more to come from IOSCO. And here just to share that we have actively participated as well in the discussions to try and help shape these recommendations, which are the result of a great amount of collaboration and the outcome of complex but fruitful discussions on the different approaches to regulate crypto assets while still allowing digital innovation. So this another area where certainly international engagement has been really key. And just finally, you mentioned busy agendas, but we're not the only one being busy. There are other jurisdictions that are quite active as well. And just to name a couple, uh, the US and the UK are also providing a lot 
of new initiatives. And therefore, it's so important that we can sit around the table, engage, understand where each regulator is coming from and see whether there are uh, common issues or common challenges or policy goals. Most of the time, we are aligned with the final outcome of what we're trying to do. So one area, for example, that we've been discussing is the initiatives around shortening the settlement cycle. And you saw ESMA came out with a call for evidence to understand the impact potentially for the EU. And then in general, ESMA participates alongside the European Commission. So we would accompany the European Commission in their dialogues. And those are very important forums for us when we can engage with the authorities of third countries. So with Japan, Canada, the US, the UK. And we had our first formal dialogue with the UK since the agreement on the MOU. And it was a very productive meeting. So we're very happy that we've reached that point. And we now have a formal setup for that cooperation to take place in addition to all the engagement that is, of course, taking place elsewhere as well. Well, if you're happy with the engagement with the UK, you can imagine how happy we are that it's going well post-Brexit. And all the points you made, there are a lot of new issues. You touched on crypto and sustainability where guidance and standards are sought by the industry. We want to know what the disclosure requirements are. That's really important. And to have that done consistently across jurisdictions is very important. And then, of course, there's the existing issues and risk, and most importantly, is the CCP. So that's good news to hear that you're focused and aligned, making sure we have consistent risk requirements and CCP requirements. And I know you're looking at updating margin requirements, both for cleared and non-cleared, and making sure that those are done consistently across the globe is critical. Now, global policymakers have been working to address a wide range of programs, as you just addressed, but some of the vulnerabilities associated with non-bank financial intermediation, covering liquidity, leverage, and margin. How is ESMA contributing to this work, and how might it drive future changes in EU regulation? This is a very important area, and thanks for raising it. So there have been, for a number of years now, discussions about whether risks are shifting in the system and what can we do about it to make sure that we harness those risks appropriately. And I think at least we can acknowledge that some key steps have been taken and have been accomplished both at the EU and international level. And that being said, we still have quite a few challenges ahead of us that we need to overcome collectively. So let me just go through a couple of areas. So maybe on the asset management space, which for ESMA is very core to our responsibilities. And that's an area where now we have in the EU negotiations that have been finalized in the area of investment management with the review of the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive and the USITS Directive. It's the response from the EU to the concern around liquidity mismatch for open-ended funds. So at least it provides this response to, okay, how do we make sure that we have redemption policies that are consistent with the strategy and potential investor requests. And here the requirements will be for fund managers to select at least two liquidity management tools and also some requirements to make sure that they have policies and procedures to activate, deactivate these tools. The regulators will have a role to play also to see what's being proposed and ESMA will have to provide some guidance on the calibration and the selection. So there's still a lot to be done, but we have the first milestone, which is there has been a political agreement on these important legislations will provide the EU answer to this liquidity concern in the asset management space. The second area is the one that I know is dear to you, and, and you just mentioned it on derivatives and margin practices, where there have been quite a lot of discussions around liquidity demand and the potential increase in that liquidity demand as a result of the transition to central clearing. So we all agreed collectively that to reduce risks in the financial system, we needed to encourage central clearing. But then we see now that that has some effects 
And so this central clearing obligation has actually reduced counterparty credit risk, but it has triggered some liquidity risk through large margin requests from clearing members and clients in certain episodes. So just to, you know, to remind everyone that we've seen this operate in equity derivatives, for example, in March 2020. We've also seen that in the energy derivatives in March 2022 in the summer, and then also for interest rate derivatives in September 2022. So it is actually coming through quite a bit. So what have we been doing there? ESMA has taken some regulatory actions to try to respond to the heightened volatility in energy markets, as you know. In July 23, we adopted changes to our regulatory technical standards on anti-procyclicality. The aim there was to foster further convergence within the EU of how these rules were implemented, but also to increase the resilience of the EU financial system more generally. And here, I think just to flag, as we just discussed, that we are deeply committed to the international work on margin practices to make sure that we get this right. And so we're very much looking forward to the publication of by the end of, of the year normally of the BCBS CPMI OSCO phase two report on the review of margining practices. And we hope that meaningful guidance can be adopted in 24 to mitigate the spread of liquidity stress to other parts of the financial system. Well, that's an important consultation. You know, it gets to the issue of pro-cyclicality, and we believe that's a feature, not a flaw. But as you noted, when markets are volatile, they can really go high, and the margin requirements can be quite expensive. And so we want to make sure that we can continue to have an affordable clearing regime, both in times of stress and normal times. On the non-cleared side, you mentioned the interest rate volatility in the end of 2022. And as the keeper of the standard initial margin model for non-cleared margin, we look at quarterly reports to make sure that it's still fit for purpose. And we did do an off-cycle calibration to adjust the model to address that volatile period. You know, it is that we, we take that seriously. We monitor that model and make sure that it's always up to date. And so we were able to update that and share that with regulators around the world to make sure that we have a really risk-appropriate margin model for non-cleared margin. So both sides, cleared and non-cleared, are well taken care of. If I may just add a few points on the remaining challenges. So if we look ahead, just two areas I wanted to mention on where we still have a little bit of a, a way to go. It's in the area of leverage risk, where here we see in the current environment, it is particularly important that we are focused on leverage because excessive use of leverage can actually amplify other risks. So if you have market risk or liquidity risk here, we see a risk of contagion and magnifying of shocks in financial stability. So given the markets that we are operating in now and, and what we see, it's particularly important we feel that we look at that. And here, the preliminary analysis and the close monitoring that we've been doing points to maybe some more work to be done from regulatory supervisory perspective. So that's what we're doing now in the context of FSB work and ESRB. So maybe looking ahead, one area where there's perhaps more to be done is in the area of leverage. The other point, and that will not surprise anyone who's following what ESMA is doing, is the area of money market funds. So the commission has indicated that they don't see the need for an immediate change, but they do point to some areas where the system could be strengthened. ESMA has put out an official opinion where we advocate for some changes, improvements to the regulation in the EU. And here again, you can expect us to continue to advocate for that to happen sooner rather than later to strengthen the financial system generally in the EU. Can I go back to that leverage point? It strikes me as quite a challenge. I guess we know ex post when leverage is excessive. How do you determine and, and set balances? So you, what's the appropriate level of leverage, I guess, is the big question. And who gets to decide that or who should decide that? 
I think the work that's going on is mainly in the area of asset management for the moment. Again, where ESMA has in its remit uh, an important area to look at. And if you look at asset management, we do have tools. So there are two things that we need to do. We need to have a better understanding. So collecting information, understanding just factually where is the leverage and what is the level is it building up in what area they might be some areas that are more prone to risks than others so there's a lot of discussions today about certain segments of corporate bond funds or certain discussions around real estate funds so are we satisfied with the level of leverage in those different areas and in the EU we have the tool of the article 25 in the AAFMD that allows some supervisors to cap leverage where they are not comfortable. And that has been triggered once by the Central Bank of Ireland already with strong documentation backing why they felt that that was necessary. And ESMA has to provide an opinion in that case. And we were supportive. So that's a little bit what we're trying to do. So it's not necessarily to say that in general leverage is an issue everywhere, but just in volatile markets, when you have such a steep rise in interest rates, we should all be mindful that the risk is there, it exists. And what can we do about making sure we have a good understanding of where potentially it's building up and being prepared to take action should that be necessary? I know it's a tough challenge, so good luck with that. In particular on the transparency, we now have over a decade of reg reporting implemented. There's a lot of valuable data there to unpick, but which is a good opportunity to switch to the next topic. EU entities have less than six months to go until revised reporting requirements will be implemented under a mere refit in April of 2024. To what extent will these rules resolve some of the challenges associated with reporting of derivative trades and what benefits could be gained by machine-readable and executable reporting or MRER that you've proposed in your strategic plan? So we see that the reporting regime under the EMEA refit should facilitate the reporting process for reporting entities. And at the same time, it should also hopefully maximize the benefits also of the reported data for regulators. So we do see that as a positive development. And let me just maybe flag three you know, practical ways in which we see this should hopefully play out. First, the increased standardization and alignment with international standards. So with reference to the unique transaction identifier, the unique product identifier. So if we have a UTI, UPI, and the critical data elements, that should also help in the implementation of the standards agreed at the international level into the European reporting framework. If you have improved harmonization, then that should also facilitate the compliance for the reporting entities. That's the first element. The second is end-to-end reporting uh, using common ISO 2022 XML messages where we've seen that the use of this standard has helped in other areas reduce the number of errors and inconsistencies. So we're hoping that here as well, this will help. We've seen it in the MIFIR and SFTR reporting requirements that that has been very beneficial. So hopefully that will also help reduce some of those errors and improve the quality of data that is being reported. And the last element also in support of data quality is we have tried to put out some guidance to ensure from the outset that we set the, the conditions for better quality of the data that is reported. And to do that, we've released a comprehensive set of technical standards, guidelines, validation rules, and we stand ready to provide more to make sure that from the beginning we are well prepared. Another element is we were mindful of the impact of these changes for all stakeholders involved. So we have also provided sufficient time ahead for all of us to be prepared for that reporting. So hopefully those practical elements will make this a beneficial change for everyone. Now, to your question on machine-readable and executable reporting, I think we do believe that this should be beneficial as well, that this should bring improvements. 
generally speaking, new technologies should enhance automation of reporting and it should reduce the cost. That should be the, the first benefit. And in addition, hopefully, it can improve the quality and consistency of the information that is then used by the supervisors because you get less errors and more precise reporting instructions. That's where we're looking for with a lot of interest at what ISDA is doing actually in this area. So very keen to also learn from you, Scott, what you've been doing there and whether you see some further needs for change. We know that some market participants have already started to use machine-readable and executable reporting for reporting to, for example, the CFTC in the U.S. for their reporting obligations and that other preparations are also underway potentially for EMI refit. So this is something that we'll be monitoring very closely from our perspective, considering how new technologies can help us improve overall the system, make it more efficient, reduce compliance costs, and make sure that the data that is received is actually properly used for us is one of our priorities. So we certainly will see what potential there is and what more we can do to make sure that we reach that outcome. Well, nice of you to recognize the ISDA work. We're really excited about the work that we've been able to achieve in supporting the CFTC rules. We're working aggressively. The teams are very busy with dealing with the EU rules, and that involves establishing a best practice that we all agree complies fully with the regulation and then coding that into the common domain model. And we'll continue to update each jurisdiction to comply because it just makes reporting for our members easier. It gives you a completely accurate record of what you've asked for, and it makes, as you pointed out, compliance cheaper and accurate so the members don't get fines for inaccurate reporting. So I think we're in violent agreement in terms of what we were trying to achieve here, and it really does require us to kind of agree on a standard that you want this information and delivered in, and we can automate that as quickly and easily as possible because we're all in, because we think this is a great solution to a problem that both of us have to deal with. Now, in June, and you touched on this earlier, you also published a data strategy with the commitment to facilitate the use of new technologies, reducing reporting costs, and enable effective use of data and make data more available to the public. This is ambitious, wide-ranging strategy. We're fully supportive of it because we think standardization and automation are key to this. How will you keep this project on track? Yes, it is ambitious. Thanks for recognizing that. But we're very excited about this data strategy. So as I said earlier, for the work program, this is also aligned generally with our five-year strategy, right? So this data strategy serves the purpose of the overarching strategy and the underlying driver of trying to make sure that we have an effective use of data as much as possible and harness new technologies. Here, the idea is to be even more than we are today, data-driven across all our activities. And how can we achieve that sort of ambitious vision and objectives is really, that's our response to the very high pace of change that we see in the markets already. And so what can we do? How can we help support that development? So we touched upon already some of the elements in the previous questions, Scott, but so maybe just briefly to say, that there are a number of initiatives that we're looking at to see how we can translate that. We're very mindful also of the limited resources of everyone and how challenging this can be. So trying to be pragmatic, but maybe just to say we're trying to make sure we can reduce other burden for a reporting entities. So standardization, guidance, uh, working with stakeholders, consulting to make sure we can provide that framework to facilitate. And separately also making maximum use of the data that's coming in for supervisors. So enhancing our data hub, facilitating wherever possible data sharing, applying new technologies such as artificial intelligence, 
So maybe let me give you four practical examples of some of the projects we have in mind. This is not comprehensive, but just to give a flavor of what we're trying to do. So first, for example, we're trying to develop our capacity to enable the use of our data platform that is big data and cloud technology based to onboard more competent authorities so they can also benefit from the technology. Another area is to try and use artificial intelligence in our analytical work. So we are trying to do it, for example, in the area of market abuse or in the area of detection of greenwashing. A third area is in the area of the implementation of ESAP, so the European Single Access Point, where also we're trying to make sure that we automate what can be automated and be as efficient as we can. This is also a very challenging project for ESMA for the coming years. And then finally, also in the fund reporting space, we're trying to do as much as possible to improve standardization, integration of reporting requirements to be as efficient as possible. So this is just a number of practical use cases, but this is a much broader uh, data strategy. It's a five-year plan. And again, we're very mindful of uh, being you know, realistic of what we can actually embrace, but the vision is there and we really want to make sure we can try and support as much as possible. Well, best of luck on that. We fully agree with the data standardization. It does drive efficiency. Regulators around the world are asking for the same information and same data. Now, I'd have to say that you're probably ahead of some of the other jurisdictions, but when it comes to regulatory reporting, I think there are roughly 20 jurisdictions worldwide, and each of our, our members have to comply with each of those. So to the extent we can at least get close and then use technologies such as the common domain model and to comply with that, it makes everybody's life easier. You get complete transparency and and we have full compliance and efficiency. So it's a good partnership if we can work together on this. Now, following the recent completed review of MIFID and MIFIR, what would be the most significant changes in the derivatives markets from ISMA's point of view? So maybe the most prominent change in the derivatives markets is the scope of transparency requirements for derivatives. We are a strong supporter, as you know, of transparency. We have always considered as a powerful tool to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of capital markets. But here, while the existing transparency regime has proven somewhat complex and not always consistent across the EU, we have to note that the derivatives transparency in this review will actually significantly decrease. So, for example, request for quote trading will no longer have to be transparent or ODC derivatives will only be transparent to a, for a limited set. On the bright side, we definitely welcome the setup of new deferral regimes. So that will ensure a common application of the deferrals as opposed to the current regime where you had some variations between jurisdictions. So that's also a, a positive development there. We see a little bit of a complexity with the five categories of transactions there, but OK, we'll make that work. The second element that is important in the review is the question of the appropriate identifier for derivatives. And here the key question from our perspective, from ESMA's perspective, on the use of the appropriate instrument identifier is what we believe is a key precondition for the development of more integrated reporting systems with a view precisely as we discussed earlier to reduce the reporting burden. So for us, the choice of the standard identifiers to be used across meta-reporting and disclosure obligations is crucial and should be made considering the interdependencies between the various data flows and the purpose and use of the data. So the more the granular the identifier, the easier it is to then reuse it for other purposes because it's always possible to derive the less granular one from the more granular one. So we'll have to see how we make that work in the MIFIR environment. And more generally, the choice of the standard identifier in reporting and transparency regimes, it should be made up to careful consideration of, as I said, the use of the data, its intended use. And here, since the scope of the derivative subject to transparency under the revised MIFIR framework has been revised quite significantly, 
we would be supportive of a proper assessment to make sure that the appropriate identifier would take into account the new scope and the specific trading behaviors of derivative instruments covered. So just on this one, what's important from our perspective is that just we make sure we actually consult adequately the market. We understand what the use will be, what the needs are, what we're trying to achieve from a policy objective, and we define the right identifier, taking into consideration all those elements. A last point that maybe is less on everybody's radar screen that I thought I would mention is the transfer of the definition of the multilateral system from the directive MIFID II to MIFIR. And it might have been overlooked, but it might actually affect the derivative markets in a positive way, in our view, because now it means that the national interpretations will no longer be possible. We will have this common definition of what is a multilateral system. So taken together with the opinion on the trading venue perimeter that ESMA published earlier this year, that should help actually increase the level playing field. So we maybe this is something also worth mentioning. I think it is important, and we look forward to commenting on the identifiers. Another element is the consolidated tape and equity bonds, ETFs, and derivatives, potentially. This will be a major change as well. How confident are you that this will add value and what will be the main considerations for ESMO when selecting a consolidated tape provider? So consolidated tapes is a major element of this review. It has been discussed extensively and ESMA has been for a long time a supporter of the introduction of consolidated tapes in the EU. We really believe that well-functioning consolidated tapes for different asset classes will improve the functioning and transparency of European markets and ultimately contribute to improving the effectiveness of European capital markets and their attractiveness. It's often been referred to as a game changer. I don't know whether that will actually be the case, but certainly a development in the right direction to improve the functioning of our European markets. And we believe that having this sort of golden source, this vital information on prices and volumes of trades in the EU will improve the functioning and provide more comparable information, reduce asymmetries. So generally really a positive development. That being said, from ESMA's perspective, it's quite a challenge. It's a new responsibility that we're given there in terms of having to select. There are quite strict rules around how that has to be done. From ESMA's perspective, we'll try to be as rigorous as possible, as transparent as possible to comply with what is required there. We welcome the fact that there are some clear criteria there in the legislation already for us to consider. Of course, this is a challenging project, so we are already preparing to make sure that we are ready. The timelines are quite short for each of them to make sure we're prepared. But yes, we will definitely do our utmost to make sure that we deliver on that and, and we can actually properly select the providers and finally have CTPs in the EU. Yeah, well, good luck. You mentioned earlier the threat of operational risk and the threat of cyber attack in financial markets is on the rise and we all have to be very attuned to the risks and how we address those. How significant is the threat in the EU? I'm sure it's a threat in every jurisdiction. And what role is ESMA taking in addressing this? So thanks for raising this because we don't often actually talk about this, but clearly the threat of cyber attacks on European financial markets and more generally to the financial system is a serious one. And the pandemic acted for everyone as a catalyst for increased digitalization of financial services, which in general is a, a very positive development. But in this area in particular, of course, it has increased the level of risks and the possibility of penetrations or breaches. In practice, there's an ever-present risk of attacks by cyber criminals, such as ransomware attacks. And in the current geopolitical environment, we also face heightened level of risk of malicious actions by state actors or different groups. 
from the perspective of a single firm or an investor, the consequences of a cyber attack can be quite severe. So there's a risk that you would lose valuable data, personal information that could be lost, damaged or compromised. There are financial entities like market infrastructures or systemic entities that might face the risk of operational systems not being able to function for a certain period of time. And in both cases, there could be substantial financial losses for the firms or the individuals. But beyond that, a major cyber attack can actually pose a risk to financial stability. And so if you have simultaneous outages among firms that prevent proper market functioning or if the cyber attack is widespread, then it may damage overall confidence in the financial system, amplify risk to stabilities in such a situation. So what is important from our perspective is that authorities coordinate effectively. And that's where it's important in this, we don't have it yet, but with the Digital Operational Resilience Act, there's enhanced cooperation, governance structures, a facilitation. We already have some structures in place, but it will be reinforced with this new legislation. Also available information suggests that the level and scope of cyber attacks is actually currently high, but we don't have all the information. So here again, we will have enhanced reporting with the Doha, we will have incident reporting being reported to national authorities, to the EU. So we will be able also to have a better understanding of the risk that is there. So what is ESMA doing in particular? So as I said, Doha will introduce requirements for all financial entities to report major ICT-related incidents. And also entities can report significant cyber threats on a voluntary basis. The new rules will give us this understanding that I was mentioning. And also it will help us try to understand then with the different incidents, what implications it might have at firm level, at, at market level, etc. And so we will be monitoring those incidents more generally. We also have, as you, I'm sure you've seen, the ESRB recommendation that asks us to put in place an EU systemic cyber incident coordination framework. So we're also working on that to have, again, that common sharing timely of information to make sure that the system is more resilient generally. And then finally, what I mentioned earlier about the new responsibility the European supervisory authorities will have in terms of oversight of critical ICT third-party providers, that would also be a system to strengthen generally the system, that we have a better understanding of those interdependencies, of the risks to entities within the EU that could have a major footprint or impact in case of a problem or dysfunction. So that also hopefully in the future will make us stronger. It's an important topic, and I certainly hope you stay coordinated internationally with uh, other regulators. We try to stay as coordinated with our members and with other trade associations, so we speak with one voice, one set of guiding principles in terms of establishing a high but achievable risk preparation, and then making sure that regulators across the globe are coordinated because submitting and trying to comply with one set of regulations while simultaneously supporting another is is extraordinarily difficult when it comes to risk systems and whether that's clearing or operational risk like cyber to stay consistent is critically important. Now, I'd like to finish by finding out a little bit more about you. You've been a regulator for some time, joining ESMA in 2021 after 10 years at France's AMF. Was financial services regulation always the dream growing up? <laughs> and if you weren't doing this, what would you think your career might have been? So when I look back, before joining the French securities regulator, the AMF, I actually saw the detriment that can happen at the individual investor level when that person is confronted with fraud or misleading information or improper disclosures, mis-selling. And so it really made sense for me to go up the chain and be able to have an impact and be able to 
change the rules at the root cause and try and see if we can have a better system. So in a modest way, as a financial service regulator, to be able to contribute to that part for me has been a very rewarding exercise. So I didn't dream about that when I was a teenager, but it certainly makes a lot of sense for me. And I'm, and I'm very proud of being able to participate at my level to improve the system, hopefully to the benefit of making a safer place for people to invest for their future and for their retirement or for whatever needs that they have. And maybe it's worth mentioning something else that is very strong in the European system and very strong in, in the environment I'm in is being able to participate again at a modest level to the European projects and in the financial sector it's actually one of those integrated areas where you can see there's an impact and the financial services sector has such an important role to contribute to financing growth and the development and job creation. And in particular now, the sustainability and the climate transition that is also very rewarding to be in this particular place. Of course, the nitty gritty of the disclosures you might not really like, but the idea of being able to contribute to that project is really strong. And then I have the privilege, you know, of being in a position where I'm very much people focused. I have the the privilege of working with people who are extremely talented and committed. And so just working with the women and men that compose ESMA staff every day, it's just it's just a privilege to be where I am today. So certainly I'm very happy to be here. And if you weren't going to be a regulator, what would you have been? So I sometimes say I fell in the pot when I was a, a child, so I probably would have ended up here somewhere or another. I've always been fascinated by the combination of law, technicalities, political dimensions, and financial services regulation. There's an interesting mix of that. So somewhere or another, I would have ended up in that area. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have, Natasha. Thank you very much for joining us on The Swap. Scott, it's been a while since we had a European regulator on the swap, so it was great to get an update on the priorities. There was a fair amount there on the importance of global standards and international cooperation, which is obviously a big priority of ours as well. Are we seeing much sign of increased global convergence? Yes and no. We talked about the EU's forthcoming changes to its derivative regulatory reporting rules. And regulators in other jurisdictions are making similar updates. And that's a great example of regulators converging on agreed data standards, which will enhance consistency across borders. Obviously, it would have been helpful if this had been agreed right from the start rather than every country initially developing its own rules, but, you know, better late than never. However, there are still some instances of divergence between jurisdictions. And whether it's in the data reporting rules or the capital rules or risk in systems, Natasha talked about a couple of areas where they're working very hard to drive consistency, and data is one of them. There's some new areas as well. She's talked about sustainability. She talked about operational risk. She talked about digital assets. So I think we have a real opportunity to learn from past mistakes and areas where there wasn't complete consistency and develop rules that are more consistent across the board. It will help with compliance. It'll certainly help with a common outcome across jurisdictions. And they have the venues to do it. She mentioned CPMI. Certainly, IOSCO is a great convening authority and drives a lot of standardization. So we know where they can find these consistencies, and they need to really work hard to achieve that. Okay, thanks, Scott. We'll leave it there. But before we go, I wanted to flag next year's ISDA AGM in Tokyo on April 16th to 18th. This will be a terrific event in an amazing city. So we really hope to see you there. 
our super early bird rate expires at the end of the year, so please do book early to take advantage of the best rates and to avoid disappointment. You can get more information at our AGM website, agm.isda.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.